What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. So imagine getting in that time machine, going back to 107, as a Protestant who believes the Eucharist is just a symbol, say, and realizing that the only people who agree with you that it's a symbol are people who deny the Incarnation. Their ideas are so radical that they're outside of Christianity altogether. Even though they call themselves Christians, they don't believe Christ really came into the world, which is a really central part of what it is to be a Christian. To find out that your Eucharistic theology agrees with them and not with the actual followers of the apostles should be a huge red flag because they're obviously heretics. That's Joe Heschmeyer of Catholic Answers and the Shameless Popery podcast challenging Protestants who deny the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper to just go back in time and see who they agreed with, the Orthodox or the heretics. But does it apply to all Protestants? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, January the 31st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Stephen Parks is going to join us for our series responding to Roman Catholic proof text today, Gnostics and the Eucharist and the Paschal Controversy, the controversy over the date of Easter. Then Aaron Wren will be alongside. We'll discuss Christianity in a hostile culture. He's author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Dr. Stephen Parks is senior pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Glendora, California, formerly served as an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Stephen, welcome back. Todd, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you. First of all, I just want to commend Heschmeyer because this is a solid way of checking your theology, and that is to go back not only to Scripture, of course, but also to the consensus of the Church and then to the Orthodox Fathers and to say, does my theology line up with them? Have I come up with something new? Am I right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and not just me, but the Reformers themselves agreed that that was a wise way to go about doing things. So, for example, when Luther is talking about the question relating to the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, he says, it's dangerous and terrible to hear or to believe anything against the unanimous testimony, faith, and teaching of the whole Holy Christian Church, which from the beginning until now for 1,500 years has been taught harmoniously all over the world. And likewise, Chemnitz, in the examination of the Council of Trent, when he's dealing with the question of the real presence, he says, this understanding also has the constant consensus of the ancient, true, and purer church. So this is the idea that frequently is misunderstood, is that a a teaching regarding sola scriptura is a rejection of all tradition, which in fact, that's not the case. If you read through thinkers like Chemnitz, for example, he goes through eight different ways that the word tradition is used. And one of those ways is exactly what you just mentioned, Todd, which is this idea of bringing up a universal or unanimous consensus of the fathers. And he says, we willingly and gratefully receive those things precisely because, though, that their unanimous consent is based upon the scriptures themselves. So we don't have time to go through all of Heschmeyer's argument with regarding 
the Gnostics, ancient Gnostics and Docetists, and how how they subsequently denied Christ's bodily presence in the, in the Eucharist. But how would you summarize his argument? And is it valid against Protestants who do deny the bodily presence of Christ in the Supper? So, yeah, his argument is essentially this. He's he's quoting from Ignatius, and in his letter to the Smyrnans, Ignatius says this. He says, speaking of the Gnostics, he says, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Those, therefore, who speak against this gift of God incur death in the midst of their disputes. So, Ignatius doesn't have in mind here Christians who actually believe in the incarnation of Christ, but simultaneously teach that the Lord's Supper is merely a symbol. So somebody like Zwingli or maybe a modern-day Baptist or Pentecostal, but instead he has in mind primarily the Gnostics, who denied that Jesus really did come into the world, who denied that Jesus really did have a true body, who denied that Jesus really lived in the way that a human being could, who denied that Jesus really died on the cross and therefore denied that he rose from the dead three days later. So it's a bit like apples and oranges to compare the true groups because it's just quite simply not what Ignatius has in mind. The reason that he brings up the real presence of Christ here in the Eucharist is because they deny not only the presence of Christ in history and reality, but they also deny his presence in the Eucharist. So his concern here is twofold. It's not as if he's addressing, for example, a Zwinglian. What I don't see consistent in his argument is the acknowledgement that there is that inconsistency. While there are incarnational implications of denying Christ's bodily presence in the Lord's Supper, there certainly sure. are, you do put at risk Orthodox confession of the incarnation, but it doesn't seem like Heschmeyer is acknowledging that there are Protestants who say, I believe in the incarnation 100%, but <laughs> they don't see that that belief in the incarnation leads naturally to an understanding of Christ's bodily presence in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, Todd, really. The, the reality is, is that so much of apologetics, and this is true of, of Roman Catholic apologetics, Eastern Orthodox apologetics, also can be true of various strains of Protestant apologetics, is that sometimes it overpromises and underdelivers, and in many cases it oversimplifies. And I think that that is something that Heschmeyer especially is guilty of time and time and time again. So the, the video that we're responding to is called Six Early Church Controversies Protestants Can't Explain. And the reality is, as a Lutheran, I have no difficulty whatsoever explaining it. I completely agree 100% with what it is that uh, is being said here by Ignatius. I believe in the real incarnation of Jesus Christ, and therefore that he had real flesh and blood. And I believe in the real presence of Christ, that in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, we receive the real body and the blood of Christ. So there's an oversimplification here is to almost make it sound like this is what all Protestants believe. So that's in and of itself a difficulty when you have whole swaths of Protestantism that believe in the real presence of Christ, Lutheranism, huge parts of Anglicanism, and so on. And then also the reality that there are many who believe in the real presence of Christ who don't necessarily buy into the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which perhaps we'll, we'll get into talking about later. But secondly, is the issue of the incarnation. And I think it's oversimplified here because you can't just find one commonality and then assume that everybody who has that commonality is guilty of the core problem. 
right? So it's a bit like saying, well, you know, Hitler loved his mom and, and I love my mom. So basically I'm a Nazi or something along those lines. It just, you can't do that. It's unfair and it just, it doesn't work that way. Now, you had mentioned that confessional Lutherans most certainly affirm the bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. All you got to do is look at the look at the controversies that Luther and the other Reformers had with those who denied it, and you see them affirming it over and over again. You also mentioned a big swath of Anglicans who, while differing on the particulars, do at least in name say that Christ's body is truly present in the Lord's Supper. What exactly do Lutherans believe about the presence of Christ in the Supper? We're often accused of something that's called consubstantiation. Right. So as Lutherans, we simply, we don't like to use the terminology of consubstantiation, and for very good reason. That was a view that was a competing view, especially in the medieval period, with transubstantiation, which ultimately becomes the Roman Catholic doctrine. And consubstantiation has with it all kinds of historical, philosophical, and theological baggage that ought not to be placed upon the Lutheran position. So as Lutherans, we've historically just referred to our belief as the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, which is to say that we believe what Jesus says is true. When he says, this is my body, we believe it. When he says, this is my blood, we believe it. And we recognize that amongst the church fathers, there were a number of different ways in which they sought to explain that the body and the bread are present or that the wine and the blood are present and that transubstantiation is one attempt at doing that. But as you said, huge swaths of Christianity affirm really and truly that real presence of Christ without necessarily signing on to transubstantiation. I mean, you can look at also the Assyrian Church of the East or the Oriental Orthodox churches or even Greek Orthodoxy. It's sometimes difficult to nail down what Eastern Orthodoxy believes exactly, but they don't frequently speak in terms of transubstantiation. So you don't have to believe in transubstantiation in order to believe in the real presence. So what is transubstantiation in particular, and how do Lutheran beliefs differ from it? Yeah. So transubstantiation is a belief that's really rooted and grounded in the philosophy or the metaphysics of Aristotle. When Aristotle said, sort of whenever you consider a thing, you can consider it one of two ways. You can consider it according to what makes a thing what it is, sort of inwardly speaking, and he referred to that as a substance. Or you could refer to sort of the changeable or outward characteristics of things, in this case, the things that strike the senses, right? So think about a dog, for example. If we brought in, let's say, 10 different breeds of dogs, all of them, according to Aristotle, would have the same substance, which is the very substance of a canine. Whatever it is that makes a dog a dog, they all have it, 100%. But as you look at the different breeds, you find that maybe each one of them is a little different. One's big, one's small. One has long hair, one has short hair. One looks ferocious, one looks like a little puppy dog, et cetera, et cetera. So those outward characteristics, Aristotle referred to as accidents. And those are those changeable outward characteristics that might vary from thing to thing to thing. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, once the priest, and since Vatican II, also the people are involved at least somewhat in the, the sacrifice and so forth. But once the priest consecrates the elements of the bread and wine, there is a change that takes place. And the way that they explain that change is that the substance of the bread and wine, right, whatever it is that makes bread, bread, and wine, wine inwardly, 
is annihilated. It's done away with, and it is replaced with the substance of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. So um, trans means change, substantia is a change of, of substance. So there's a literal replacement of the substance of the bread and wine with the substance of Christ's body and blood so that it's no longer bread and wine. Bread and wine do not remain. They've been annihilated. Only the outward appearances or the accidents of bread and wine remain. So that's essentially the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation in a nutshell. For Lutherans, we believe that Christ is really and truly present, but we are consistent in our belief in the real presence, meaning we not only affirm the real presence of our Lord's body and blood, but we likewise affirm the real presence of the bread and the wine. So the bread doesn't stop being what it was. God doesn't change the nature of the bread, but instead something is added to the bread, namely the body of Christ. And similarly, when it comes to the wine, the wine doesn't stop being something that it used to be. It remains what it always has been, but instead something is added to the wine, namely the blood of Christ. And it's done in a supernatural way and in an incomprehensible way, in a way that we can't totally or completely understand, but in a way that nevertheless is clearly communicated to us in the words of institution when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. But as we look at the scriptures, they likewise continue to affirm the existence of bread. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He calls it bread. Or in Matthew chapter 26, after the consecration, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new. So the Bible calls it bread and the Bible calls it the body of Christ. The Bible calls it wine or fruit of the vine, and the Bible calls it the blood of Christ. Lutherans don't choose, but we say yes, both of those are true simultaneously. Dr. Stephen Parts is our guest. It's our series responding to Roman Catholic proof text today, Gnostics and the Eucharist. In a little bit, we'll be talking about the Paschal controversy, but we'll take up the question of what the Church Fathers had to say about the real presence and explicitly denying a transformation of the bread and wine. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we journey further in Ruth with pious Boaz. Boaz meets Ruth. Ruth learns Boaz is a redeemer, Naomi's instructions, and Ruth's plea. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Sacramental. Historical. Liturgical. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. 
Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization, one student at a time. Silicon Valley is a place of cutting-edge innovation which radically changes lives, where science fiction is already in research and development. In the heart of this digital chaos is a sanctuary of constancy and reverence, Hope Lutheran in Fremont, where nothing is new under the California sun, where the timeless gospel is proclaimed and the sacrament is celebrated with the historic liturgy that truly changes lives. And thanks to Silicon Valley, you may find us on the web at hopelutheranfremont.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series responding to Roman Catholic proof texts today, the Gnostic and Eucharistic controversies. So, Stephen, let's go back to the Church Fathers. There are many of them that do affirm the real presence, but speak against the notion of transubstantiation. Yeah, that's that's correct. The, the way that the Reformers handled the Church Fathers, I think, is a much more responsible way of, of going about doing things, which is they recognize that, that the Church Fathers don't always agree with one another, and that there were different ways in which the Fathers sometimes spoke about the presence of Christ. But Roman Catholicism has affirmed that transubstantiation is the only way that one can actually understand it. So, for example, in, in the Council of Trent, in session 13, canon 2, they said, if anyone says that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and the wine remains conjointly with the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and denies that wonderful and singular change of the whole substance of the bread in the body into the whole substance of the wine and the blood, the appearance only of bread and wine remaining, which changed the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. So they they don't allow for any other understandings. But the problem is, is that when you read the Church Fathers, you have different ways in which they explained it. And the Lutherans recognized that the way in which they were suggesting that Christ is present, based upon the words of Jesus himself, was clearly taught by many of the Fathers in the ancient Church. How do we deal then with those who I think he is properly addressing, even though he's painting with a very, very broad brush, those who deny the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. How did the Reformers deal with those who denied it? Well, they did it a, a couple of different ways, depending on who they were interacting with and, and what the, the circumstances were. On the one hand, the first thing they did, of course, is went first and foremost directly to the Holy Scriptures, and not just anywhere in the Scriptures, but especially to the words of institution. Luther, as a theologian, was one who was always in search of a we might say, kind of an institution. And well, by that, what I mean is whenever he wanted to know what something is, uh, he first went to the place that it was instituted. So if he wanted to know what baptism is, how it should be done, etc., then he'd go to the words of institution and baptism, for example, in Matthew's gospel. And he would do the same thing when it came to the Lord's Supper. So he would go to the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and where St. Paul discusses the same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. And that becomes the stronghold for Luther and the Lutherans, so much so that 
at the Marburg colloquy, when Luther ultimately comes to debate the question of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, Zwingli was kind of bringing up just about anything and everything else under the sun. He was bringing up writings of the church fathers. He was bringing up the properties of a human body. He was bringing up where Jesus is located now. And Luther got so tired of constantly giving the same answer, which was just going back to the words of Jesus, that the way that it's told is that he actually either inscribed or wrote in some way on the table the words hoc est corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. So that every time Zwingli would bring something else up, Luther would just tap the table where it says this is my body. So if he brought up the fathers, Luther would tap the table. If he brought up the properties of a human body, Luther would tap the table, etc. And the idea is it's, it's a little instructive in terms of where the two reformers were coming from. Luther wanted to get his doctrine of the supper from the Lord Jesus Christ at the institution of the supper, Zwingli kind of wanted to go other places. Now, that doesn't mean, and this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, that there aren't church fathers that clearly held our view, that continued to, to see, despite the fact that they recognize that the Lord's Supper is, in fact, the body and the blood of Christ, that also the bread and the wine remain present. So Luther could have quoted, for example, Irenaeus in his famous book Against Heresies, book four, where Irenaeus says, for as the bread, which is produced from the earth when it receives the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist. And then notice what he says, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. So for him, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper consists of an earthly reality, which is bread and wine, joined with a heavenly reality, which is the body and the blood of Christ. And he wasn't alone in this. You can sort of trace it through the centuries, and people have done a, a great deal of work on this. But I think one of the most interesting one is Glacius from the 5th century, who was actually a bishop of Rome, you know, what we would call today a pope. In his work on the two natures in Christ, here's what he says. He says, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, which we receive, is a divine thing, because by it we're made partakers of the divine nature. Yet the substance or nature of the bread and wine does not cease. This is exactly what the Lutherans were arguing based upon the words of Jesus, based upon the work, the, the rest of uh, the Holy Scriptures, and they could point to many of the church fathers that taught it as well. Did Luther go so far as to accuse Zwingli of heresy on this point? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a difficult way to, to seek to address this because on the one hand, Luther will sometimes use rhetoric where he doesn't exactly mean what he's saying, and other times he's you know pretty straightforward as it relates to these kinds of things. The other thing is, is that we have to remember is that this is a, a completely different point in history. When you and I tend to think about Christianity and the visible church, I mean, we live in a post-denominational world. So we're used to there being different denominations, different ideas, different interpretations. Luther is living at a time where essentially you're either Catholic or you're Lutheran. And both the Catholics and the Lutherans believed in the real presence of Christ. Now, speaking here of churches in the West, if you looked at the Eastern Church, they also believed in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So when Zwingli comes along and suggests the idea that the is in the terms, this is my body or this is my blood, actually means represents. He's teaching something that's new. And for Luther, that's dangerous and that is heretical. But he wouldn't have made the mistake of suggesting that somehow Zwingli didn't really believe in the incarnation or that because he said one thing that was in common with, for example, the ancient Gnostics, that it's not the flesh and the blood of Christ, that somehow Zwingli didn't believe that Jesus really had 
flesh and blood. So even if he did mean that Zwingli was a heretic, or if he didn't believe that Zwingli was a genuine Christian, it wasn't because of the idea of the incarnation, but instead it would have been presenting what appeared to Luther to be a brand new idea as it relates to Christ's presence, or lack thereof, in the Lord's Supper. Before we go to our break, what are the incarnational implications of denying the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And one of the interesting things when you look at the the way in which the church fathers talk about the uh, the Lord's Supper is they often actually use the two natures in Christ as an example of just how Christ is present. And, you know, the idea being that his it's not his divine nature that is somehow transubstantiated into his human nature or vice versa, but instead both are really and truly present, joined together and inseparably so. And so also in the Lord's Supper, we have two realities that are joined together, that being the, as Irenaeus said, the heavenly reality of Christ's body and blood and the earthly reality of the bread and the wine. What we really begin to get into, especially when the Lutherans begin debating the Calvinists, is this idea of whether or not Christ is even able to be present in more than one place at one time. For Calvin's doctrine of the incarnation, the idea is that there is no real communion that takes place between the two natures in Christ. They are joined together, but the divine nature really doesn't give anything to the human nature. And that's a pretty big deal because the way the fathers talked about it and the way that the Lutheran reformers talked about it is that while there's never a mingling of the natures, in other words, the human nature always remains human and the divine nature always remains divine, that the divine gives of itself to the human in such a way that it exercises its attributes in and through the human nature and never apart from it. So the idea here is is that the human nature then is elevated to a status that it wouldn't be able to have on its own. So it's okay to worship Christ, not just according to one nature, but both natures, because the divine nature communicates its majesty to the human nature. The human nature becomes omniscient because the divine nature gives of itself. The human nature becomes omnipotent. The human nature becomes omnipresent and so forth. So that's a, those are pretty profound things. They're things that the scriptures teach and things that the reformers clearly stood for, but they're things the Lutheran reformers clearly stood for, but they're things that the reformers debated with one another and, and rightfully so. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. He is senior pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Glendora, California, formerly served as an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. When we come back, we'll take another controversy and get Dr. Parks' response. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? 
Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. When we say Lutheran, we mean Lutheran. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ Our Savior Lutheran, Elizabeth, Colorado. Glory of Christ Lutheran, Plymouth, Minnesota. Hope Lutheran, St. Louis, Missouri. Lutheran Church of the Resurrection, Waterville, Maine. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Lexington, Kentucky. Redeemer Lutheran, Fort Wayne, Indiana, St. John Lutheran, Corcoran, Minnesota, St. Paul Lutheran, Hancock, Maryland, Trinity Lutheran, Garden City, Kansas, and Zion Lutheran, Fredericktown, Missouri. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, We'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. This Protestant principle, the regulative principle of worship, ironically is itself not a biblical principle. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says all worship is going to be dictated by the New Testament. But that's the heart of this second issue, that the Easter dating controversy shows a church that doesn't think the way these kind of Protestants think. They don't act the way these kind of Protestants act. That you can't both hold the faith of the earliest Christians and hold the faith of the Puritans, because it's radically different in the way it understands scripture, the liturgy, the worship of God, all of these things. That's Joel Heschmeyer of Catholic Answers and the Shameless Popery podcast, raising another objection to something Protestant. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Parks. It's our series, Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Text. So we heard Heschmeyer mention the Easter dating controversy. What was it? Yeah, so in, in history, it's sometimes referred to as the, the quarto deciman controversy, but basically it's this. You had a number of churches in the East, those that were centered in places like Jerusalem and Asia Minor. And then you had a number of churches in the West, particularly those in Rome, who had some serious disagreements with one another on exactly when Easter ought to be celebrated. The Eastern churches 
believe that it needed to be celebrated on the exact day of Passover, which was the, the 14th of Nisan. And they claimed that they got that specifically from the apostles, and the apostles that they claimed taught them that were John and Philip. In Rome, however, they were taught that Easter always had to be celebrated on a Sunday, and the problem with celebrating it on the 14th of Nisan would be it could fall on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, for example. But they believed it always had to be celebrated on a Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. And they, in turn, also claimed two apostles who taught them that, which was Peter and Paul. And so this controversy ultimately begins to come to a head when Pope Victor, the Bishop of Rome, more or less threatens to excommunicate those churches that are in the East who are insisting on celebrating on the 14th of Nisan instead of celebrating on a Sunday as he believed Peter and Paul had taught. Now, ultimately, cool heads prevail here. And you could appeal to some of the early church fathers like Polycarp, who said that this shouldn't be something that we split from one another over. And also other church fathers like Irenaeus, who himself was a disciple of Polycarp, who likewise said that we shouldn't be splitting over this kind of a, an issue ultimately. So that ultimately it's left up to you follow your conscience, you follow your particular tradition in your region, and you don't judge or, or excommunicate your brothers for it. Now, what Heschmeyer wants to do is he wants to kind of walk through that history and say, well, now looky here, the early church was perfectly comfortable forming worship practices and liturgical practices that were not contrary to Scripture, but not found in Scripture. And he mentioned something called the regulatory principle in Protestantism. What is that? Yeah, so the regulative principle of worship, or the RPW, is um, a view of worship that's rooted and grounded in primarily two thinkers, Wingley, but really more so Calvin. And the idea is, unless God specifically, explicitly, strictly commands something in worship, then you're not permitted to do it. Now, Luther obviously took a very different approach to things. For Luther, the idea is if something is neither commanded in Scripture nor forbidden in Scripture, then it's a matter of Christian freedom. It's what we would refer to as adiaphora. You can feel free to do it or not to do it, to observe or not to observe. The only thing you're not free to do is to judge somebody else about it because, again, there's no command and there's no forbidding of the thing. So this helps to explain, at least to a certain degree, why Luther's Reformation is sometimes considered to be kind of a little more conservative amongst the Reformers, because the idea was he was more than happy, more than ready to receive the traditions that came down to him, as long as they didn't explicitly violate the Word of God. If they violated the Word of God, they had to go. But if they didn't, he was more than willing to keep them for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity, for the sake of good order, and a whole host of other reasons. Calvin, Zwingli, and some others basically took a more of a radical approach and essentially said, no, it has to explicitly be commanded in Scripture so that you have people who may follow that who won't even celebrate things like, for example, Christmas, much less seasons like Lent or Advent or following the liturgical calendar, all because Holy Scripture doesn't explicitly command those kinds of things. So what's wrong with the regulative principle? 
Well, I, I think that, and this is, you, you can probably mark this down on your calendar, Todd, because it may be one of the only times I say this, but I actually agree with, <laughs> with what Heschmeyer has to say here, which is the primary reason, the primary thing that's wrong with the regulative principle is that it itself is not stated in the scriptures, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Now, to be sure, when God commands something, you must do it. And when God forbids something, you must not do it. But there was freedom in the Old Testament in terms of what people were and were not allowed to do when it came to worship. So you think about the temple, for example. God gave some very specific ways in which the temple was to be built, measurements. He gave some decorations that were required. So for example, you think about the angels spreading their wings on top of the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. But as you read through it, what you find is that the Israelites actually added some things that God didn't tell them to. So there are pomegranate trees, for example, that they include engravings of those things and so forth. And yet, nevertheless, God fills the temple with his glory because they weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't worshiping those images or venerating them in any way, et cetera. They were just used to beautify the space. God didn't command them to do it, but he didn't forbid it either. So it was okay. So too, also when you get to the New Testament, there are a number of different things that the apostles indicate that they're going to eventually communicate to people when they get there, when they're able to see them face to face that they don't actually write down. So the idea here ultimately is that we want to make sure that we understand that it doesn't violate at least the Lutheran understanding of sola scriptura to gladly receive traditions that we believe may even well be rooted and grounded in the practice of the apostles. Let me just kind of finish this thought with a, a citation from Chemnitz and his examination of the Council of Trent. He goes through eight different ways in which the church fathers use the term tradition. And he gives his stamp of approval to seven of those eight. And it's the seventh kind of tradition that this issue really kind of fits under. Here's what Chemnitz says. He says, the seventh kind of traditions is that where the ancients make mention of the unwritten traditions. They do not actually understand dogmas of faith without, beside, and beyond Scripture, which are to be accepted even though they cannot be proved by any testimony of Scripture. But... They speak of certain ancient rites and customs, which they trace back to the apostles because of their antiquity. And then he goes on to say, therefore, we don't simply reject and condemn all traditions which are of this kind, for we do not disapprove of what Jerome writes, namely that the churchly traditions, especially such as those that don't harm faith, are to be observed as they were handed down by the elders. So, Obviously, Chemnitz believed in Sola Scriptura, the Lutherans did, but they had no difficulty with receiving these kinds of traditions as they came down to them. So while some Protestants believe in the regulative principle of worship, not all do. And the primary difficulty there, as we indicated, is that it itself is not stated in Scripture. Is this why, if you go back to the actual books that were used to guide congregations in the Reformation, in Sunday morning worship, they had church books kind of like a hymnal, kind of like an agenda, but down to very, very detailed directions on how things ought to be done in worship and otherwise. We find the earliest Lutherans retaining far, far more in the medieval tradition than they rejected. That's exactly it. The Lutherans didn't see the need or the necessity in trying to reinvent the wheel. Their concern was not to try to rebuild the church from the ground up. That wasn't their intention. 
their church, their intention was to seek to purify the church of ungodly accretions or additional traditions which had crept in over time, which contradict the word of God. So the way in which the Lutherans sought to purify worship wasn't to say, okay, well, let's just rebuild the entire service from the ground up, but instead to take out those things which violated or otherwise contradicted the word of God. So the idea would be kind of like if you get two men that come and they look at a building and one of them says, well, that building's really in bad shape. I'm going to go to work on it and try to strengthen it and fortify it. And that's kind of the way in which the Lutherans approach the idea of the church. Others would come to the building and look at it and say, oh, it's way too diminished. I'm just going to burn it down and build a new one. That's not the approach that the Lutherans intended to take, nor really was it the approach that the Calvinists intended to take. But all too often, that is the approach that sometimes Catholic apologists think that the reformers were trying to take. You know, this idea of, well, you won't let me do my thing, so I'm going to take my toys and go home and just start my own church. That was not what they were attempting to do. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. It's our series Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Texts. Dr. Parks is Senior Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Glendora, California, and formerly served as an Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713-855-2681.
battle for the Bible in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is the theme of the latest edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine. It contains columns by Issues Etc. guests David Scare, Dean Wenthe, Matt Harrison, and Roy Askins. You can receive an annual digital and print subscription for less than $25. Find out more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective, the Lutheran Witness magazine. It's our series responding to Roman Catholic proof text. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. I was thinking before the break when you were talking about how the Reformers dealt with reforming the liturgy on Sunday morning. They even assert at one point, Dr. Parks, that they observe, they call it the Mass, they observe the Mass more reverently than their opponents, and they're speaking there of the Roman Catholic opponents. What were they trying to say? Yeah, the idea there is is that uh, they observe it without all of the accretions and the human traditions which had come to attach itself to the uh, the celebration of the Mass. In other words, so I'll give you an example. When it comes to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Reformers wanted to purify it of the concept that it was somehow a propitiatory or a or a sin-paying sacrifice for the sins of the living and for the dead in purgatory. Why? because that's not what Holy Scripture teaches. The Reformers wanted to purify the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper to go to the words of Jesus and not instead to Aristotelian metaphysics or Aristotelian complicated concepts in order to explain the Lord's Supper. The Reformers wanted to to purify the Mass in terms of trusting in the powerful word of Jesus to accomplish what it is that Jesus promises to accomplish in the sacrament instead of trusting in the office of uh, an apostolically ordained priest, for example. They wanted to purify the concept of human merit somehow playing a part in uh, gaining salvation for us on a Sunday morning, and instead trust only in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sins. So the idea here is, is that they're clinging to what the Word actually does teach and gladly receiving those things which had come to or sort of ornament the worship that the church had used for very good reasons throughout the various centuries, but which didn't, in the way that these other things did, directly and clearly violate the Word of God. And in so doing, you're kind of clearing off all of these barnacles of tradition in order to allow the ship to sail in the way that it was designed to and intended to, by God himself, no less. So when did did Lutherans, sad to say, kind of forget, or maybe even dare I say, ignore all of this proper reform of the worship practices enacted by the Reformers and just kind of started doing things on their own, started to worship really more like Protestants. Yeah, really that begins to to creep into Lutheranism when we start to have immigration taking place, especially here to the United States. As Lutherans are coming over to the U.S., this is really one of the first places and times where you could, for example, go down one street and conceivably have three, four, five different churches, right? Back in Europe, it tended to be the idea that churches were regional, and this kind of goes all the way back to the Peace of Augsburg and, and other such things where the idea was, well, whatever the, the the state is, the people are going to be. But once they come over here, they're surrounded by all kinds of, of non-Lutherans. And just like Israel under the Old Covenant, who always wanted to be like the nations around them, you're always going to have this temptation within Lutheranism to want to be like the churches around us. 
And that really starts to come to fruition when we begin to see church growth beginning to take hold in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you would see these really big mega churches that would begin to to take hold within regions. And sometimes Lutheran congregations that were a little on the smaller side would look and say, well, what are they doing that we're not doing? Why are they attracting so many people? And the idea was, well, maybe we can take their worship, which people seem to be somewhat attracted to, and kind of adopt sort of this evangelical style, but then still maintain our Lutheran substance in some way. And and I, at least, have always kind of seen that as sort of like looking at a house that has a cracked foundation and wanting to slap a new coat of paint on it and wanting to put some new windows in and thinking it's going to be okay. But it, it really isn't, because when you're adopting a worship style, which is completely comes up from outside of your own tradition, which was created with ideas regarding worship, which are at odds with the way in which we tend to think about worship, and you begin to adopt it, ultimately it's going to impact not only the way in which you do things, but it's going to impact what you believe as well. The church has a a long tradition of maintaining the saying, lex orendi, lex credendi, which is the law of speaking or praying is the law of belief. And the idea is how you worship actually informs what you believe. So you can say all you want to say that's wonderful on paper, but people are almost always going to go in the direction of what they actually do on Sunday mornings. And and therein, I think, lies the real danger or the real difficulty with adopting some uncritical ways of adopting new ways of worship. I have lived long enough to remember when Lutheran Substance and Evangelical Style, there was actually a book with those two reversed in it, Evangelical Style, Lutheran Substance, published and. It was widely and enthusiastically adopted as a, just a, a, a principle for how congregations should change their worship. I'm just wondering how the experiment worked out. Did the law of prayer actually prove to be the law of faith? It's a wonderful question. You know, and the thing is, is that it's been tried that I know of twice now. The first time is it was actually tried in the Reformation and in a way in which you might not think which is the emperor wanted to try to force the Lutherans back to obedience to the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the ways that he wanted to do that, because he recognized that the law of worship it becomes the law of belief, was, look, you can believe whatever you want internally, but you have to observe the Roman Mass in the way the Romans do it. And there were some, including Philip Melanchthon, because this is after Luther's death, who essentially said, well, maybe we could have a Catholic style with a Lutheran substance. In other words, we can celebrate the Roman Mass, but kind of give it our own Lutheran spin on it. And the faithful Lutherans at the time essentially said, no, we're not going to go that direction because those things teach and communicate things that are untrue. And those things teach and communicate false teachings that are harmful to the faith. So we're not going to go that direction. And then, of course, this started to spring up with us as well in the uh, 20th century, where you start to get ideas concerning worship, which are rooted and grounded in essentially the way unbelievers want things done. So the way in which church growth took hold was more or less to ask unbelievers, how would you like church to go? And of course, they want it to be more entertaining. They want it to be more focused on emotion, and they want it to be less focused on the Word of God. And while I certainly am not going to suggest that every contemporary service has no focus on the Word of God or anything like that, the idea is is that, generally speaking, the music is really intended much more to appeal to 
your emotion. It's really less intended to try to teach anything of substance or significance, but instead just to rev you up and get you to want to come back the following week. And I think a helpful insight is to always remember that what you win a person with is what you have to keep them with. So if you win a person with the simple word and the sacraments, that's what they're going to keep coming back for. And you can reasonably give that to them week after week after week for the rest of their lives. If, however, you win somebody with a liver shiver or you you win somebody with just an appeal to their emotions, emotions ebb and flow like the tide. You know that, Todd. I know that. So the idea is you're never going to be able to give them that emotional high every single week. And when it starts to fade their attendance is going to start to fade and they may even start to think they're not Christians anymore. And that really is where the primary problems and concerns start to come in. So what's at stake here? Because we're not simply arguing preferences here. The reformers would have said they retain those elements of the liturgy that they did because they most clearly communicate the gospel. If we abandon them, what becomes of the clear communication of the gospel? Yeah, exactly. I really love the way you put that because that's exactly what the reformers were most concerned about. It wasn't just dotting liturgical I's or crossing genuflecting T's, but instead what it was intended to do was to make sure that we safeguard as best we possibly can the gospel, to clear away the accretions which could cover over the gospel, and to do away with things which are distractions from the gospel. So when we do away with the way in which the church has essentially been worshiping for millennia at this point, we sort of put ourselves in a precarious position because these things have been proven by time. They've been time-tested. They have been carefully formulated. They have been enacted, and they've proven themselves successful. I know that a lot of people want to look at megachurches and so forth, but the largest churches in the world are still the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, and those tend to be very deeply liturgical churches. So if all you're after is is success, then I'm not necessarily sure that Baptists and Pentecostals is the kind of worship that you want to emulate. But having said that, we need to be focused very clearly on those things that best communicate law and gospel, that best communicate to us the pure teaching of what it is that Christ has accomplished for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And borrowing from traditions and taking wholesale from traditions that tend not to really excel at that almost guarantees that we end up not going to be excelling at that. And that's the last thing we want for the sake of our people. We're not just trying to carry over tradition for the sake of tradition, but rather for the sake of the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. Stephen Parks is senior pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Glendora, California. He formerly served as an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Always such a pleasure. Thank you for having me back, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues, etc., we're going to talk about Christianity in a hostile culture. Aaron Wren, author of the new book, Living in the Negative World, will be our guest. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. 
You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, invites you to an open house from 1 to 3 on Sunday afternoon, February 4th. Take a tour, visit with faculty and administration, and find out more about financial assistance and scholarships. For more information, visit the Facebook page for Metro East Lutheran High School or call 618-656-0043. Open house at Metro East Lutheran High School, Edwardsville, Illinois, Sunday afternoon, February 4th.